The other day I was reading a story to my children, book from the library, reading as we often do, and we were reading about a young girl in this storybook. Her name was Ernestine, and Ernestine was going camping for the very first time in her life. Ernestine lived in a large city, and so she was used to walking to school or walking to the store, and so she thought, going on a hike out in the woods, that'll be no problem. I'm in great shape. I'm used to walking to all these places. Well, when she arrived at the campsite, she went out there with her aunt and with her cousin, uh, who was also her age. When she arrived at the campsite, her aunt and her cousin, they decided to all go exploring the area and to go on a hike and to make sure that she was really well prepared for this hike. Ernestine decided to make a long checklist of all the things that she would need to take with her on this hike. And so this checklist included all kinds of things, everything from granola bars to extra trail mix to to sunscreen and to clothes that she might need. And by the time she was done getting her backpack all ready, it was stuffed with all of these different items. And it was so full that that she didn't have room for the very last item that she really needed to take along on that trip. And that was her stuffed, her favorite stuffed animal. And so she strapped the stuffed animal to the back of her backpack. It appeared that Ernestine was ready for anything. She was going to go exploring, and she was ready for any situation, any circumstance. But as she started hiking, she found it difficult to keep up with her aunt and with her cousin. Now, her aunt and her cousin, they weren't walking particularly fast. But because the trail went up the side of this steep mountain, Ernestine was struggling to keep up because she had this heavy pack on her back. She was weighed down with all this stuff that she needed. So she was sweating and she was breathing hard. She had to take frequent breaks, sitting down and resting because she was carrying this heavy backpack. And although she had the beauty of nature all around and she had this this incredible adventure of going out and exploring, it was going to be a wonderful time, she was miserable. She wasn't enjoying any of that stuff. Why? She wasn't able to enjoy it because she was weighed down with all of the stuff that she thought she needed. When in reality, all that stuff was preventing her from the experience itself. In life, we too can be a lot like Ernestine in this story. Trusting our own judgment, we can cram our lives full of stuff. Stuff that we think we need for the journey, whether it's possessions or whether it's accomplishments, whether it's plans for the future or our goals, we can weigh ourselves down with all of these things that we really think we need and and we can hold on to those things. And they keep us from enjoying and keep us from experiencing the life that God has intended for us. Now, please don't get me wrong. It's, It's not wrong to have goals or plans. But the problem is, is that when we depend upon our judgment, on our ideas of what we really need, the reality is we we don't really know. We're new to this. And when we depend upon our ideas, it can lead to all kinds of crippling excesses in our life. These excesses not only prevent us from thriving in life, They also lead to injustice. They lead lead us to taking and holding on to that which others need, that which God has intended for others to have, but he has entrusted to our care for the moment. He's given us the responsibility to give 
to others. When we're into these excesses and, and having everything, we're prone to injustice. Well, to save us from these self-imposed burdens, God gives us some really clear instructions on how to thrive. And he warns us what happens when we trust our own judgment and we turn from his truth. Well, for the past few weeks, we've been doing uh, a sermon series on the book of Amos titled Call for Justice. And throughout this book, we've been looking at the different messages that he has been giving. Amos gives some really hard-hitting messages. If you've been a part of this sermon series, you know that that's true. He's called out rich people who are oppressing poor people. They're utilizing their privileges to push other people down. He's calling out religious people who, they would come to church and they would sing all the songs and they would do all the proper religious things. But Outside of that, they were living a double life. They were hypocritical. They were accepting bribes in their business practices. They were preventing justice in the legal system, Amos talks about. Amos implies that religious leaders were threatening witnesses in court to not tell the truth so that they could get what they wanted. Really underhanded, unjust things. He calls out illegal business practices. There were some business people who were using dishonest scales. They would sell uh, different portions of grain and, and, and that type of thing. They were using dishonest scales to their advantage. And, they, and then on top of that, they were price gouging. All kinds of really bad things were going on. And if anyone wonders today how God feels about injustice, the injustices that are happening in our world today, if anyone wants, wants to know whether, whether God has, notices that, Amos leaves us no doubt that God hates injustice. He sees what's going on. He's not asleep. He's not distracted. He knows exactly what's happening in homes and in different places that are, that are where the injustice is taking place, in business settings, and court settings, all the different places where injustice is happening. God sees it. And God feels really strongly about it. It says that he hates it. He despises it. God cannot stand injustice. And he's going to do something about it. That's the message of the book of Amos. But God doesn't act against people who are committing injustice because he wants to hurt unjust pe people who are doing these unjust things. God's not out to hurt people. That's not why we have, we have these, we, these messages in the book of Amos of, of judgment and of these consequences against injustice. That's not God's goal. God gives these scathing rebukes against injustice because he loves people who are committing injustice, and he wants these people committing injustice to turn to him. That's God's goal. He wants to save people. He's not out to hurt them. He's not out to get even. Today, as we finish this sermon series, we're going to take a look at a message of hope. That's how the book of Amos ends. No matter what burdens you carry today, maybe burdens of guilt. Maybe you can look back on your life and say, man, I've done some really bad things. Maybe there's some other burdens in your life, excesses where you think, man, I really need to have this, or I really need to hang on to this, and it's weighing you down. What, regardless of what those burdens are that you're carrying today, God is able to set you free. He wants to see you thrive. That's God's plan for your life. Instead of trusting our judgment and trying to manage these crippling excesses that weigh us down, God shows us how we can thrive with his abundance. His, his plan for us is not scarcity. It's abundance, and God shows us how to thrive in that. 
So that's the title of the message this morning is Free to Thrive. And before we open the Bible and, and, and take a look at it, I want to invite you to pause with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and our ears to hear the, the, and see your plan for our life. Lord, we need words of life. Left to ourselves, we just weigh ourselves down with stuff. I pray, God, that we would hear the truth that sets us free and that we'd have a heart to receive it. Thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me to Amos chapter 9. If you want to use your pew Bible in front of you, it's page 922. Uh, we're going to be picking it up at verse 13. The book of Amos, as I kind of alluded to in my introduction, it ends in a way that many people may not expect. I mean, throughout the entire nine chapters of this book, there's this consistent theme that God is giving this message through Amos, and it's a message of judgment. Amos makes it clear that God doesn't play any favorites when it comes to judgment. Not only is he calling out the abuses of nations outside of Israel, they would be referred to as Gentiles, the non-Jews, he's, he's condemning these abuses uh, of these nations, but he's also condemning the injustices of his people, his chosen people, because Israel has set up counterfeit worship centers outside of Jerusalem. They've basically done their own thing with worship. They've taken God's plan, and they've adapted it to suit their own selfish desires. They set, even set up a golden calf where they were worshiping in, in places like Bethel or, or Dan. And because they've pursued their will, the result has been terrible injustice, oppression of other people. And as a result, they're going to face the consequences. They're going to go into captivity. That's, that's Amos' clear message. There's, there's no about it, no ambiguity about it. Um, the, the message of judgment is clear. But even though Amos has done his job and he's delivered this message, hey, you guys need to stop what you're doing. God's people, when they hear God's message, they reject it even though it's completely true. In fact, the priest at Bethel, you can read about it uh, in, in, in chapter 7 and 8, the priest at Bethel, it was the priest's job to lead people closer to God. He basically tells Amos, after Amos has given, faithfully given the message of God, he tells Amos, get lost. Go back to your home. Prophesy somewhere else. We don't want to hear this message, even though it's true. From a human perspective, Israel is in a hopeless situation in the time of Amos. God has seen the injustice. He has called it out. Amos has faithfully delivered the message, and Israel has rejected it. What more could God do to save his people? But even though God's people are unrepentant, God offers them, incredibly, a message of grace. And this message of grace is so good, it's almost hard to believe. Listen to what he says in chapter 9, starting with verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, we're going to talk about what that means, and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord 
your God. He still calls himself your God after all that's happened. After all the terrible things that Israel has done, God makes an outlandish promise. He's going to bring them back. They will have so much abundance. It will be like the mountains and the hills are flowing. Instead of streams of water, they're flowing with fresh grape juice. I mean, it's just an incredible picture of abundance. And this abundance is not, is not temporary. He plans for it to last forever. That's the, that's the promise that he's giving here. In verse 13, when Amos prophesies that the harvesters, the reapers, will be overtaken by those who are plowing, and those treading grapes will be overtaken by those planting. He's using language that they, were, they would have been very familiar with. Since their lives depended on farming, I mean, their, their very existence depended on, upon the success of their crops. These people, the, the, those listening to Amos' message, they paid very close attention to the cycles of farming and, and paid very close attention to the seasons. Knowing farming like they did, they would have understood that what Amos is talking about here in verses 9 through 13 is an experience of abundance that they have never seen before. This is just blowing their minds, I'm sure. They're like, what? We've never seen anything like that before. Here's why. In Israel, the act of harvesting and the act of plowing were two completely separate events. Okay, put a little calendar up here. So typically, harvesting was finished around May. By the end of May, they were done harvesting their crops. And then the, the land kind of lay fallow a, a little bit here until October when they would start plowing again. And after they would plow, then they would plant seeds. That was, that was typical, typically how it would go. They were completely separate, separated by five months. But in verse 13, these two events that were typically separate, the harvest and then Five months later, the plowing and, and the, the starting of, of the agricultural cycle again. These two events are now overlapping. It's saying that the, the plowmen are bumping into those who are harvesting. The harvesters should have finished their work by May. But here it's saying that five months later, they should have finished here, but still five months later, they are still harvesting. That's the kind of abundance that he's talking about. They're still harvesting five months later. And, and so when those people who are used to showing up with their plows and their oxen, they're ready to go and find a field that's been completely harvested, and they're ready to turn it over and get it prepared for planting again, they show up, and the harvesters are still there. They're still harvesting. There's so much to bring in. They're still going long after the time that they should have been finished. Verse 13 goes on to say that the one planting seed will be still working when the grape harvest begins. Now, the grape harvest typically took place in July, and so the picture that it's saying here is that the harvesters didn't stop harvesting in October. They continued harvesting throughout the year until probably May or maybe the beginning of June. Then the plowmen came, plowed up the fields, and now they're starting to finally plant in July when they would have been harvesting grapes. Here's the point. God is talking about a time of abundance when they are harvesting all year long. They're not able to keep up. The, the ground is so productive, it's just growing and, and producing, and, and they're just continuing to harvest, continue to bring in their crops. It's, it's a picture of abundance that blew their minds. It was unlike anything they had before. 
God's promise calls the time before sin when the ground just produced this time in Eden when there was constant production of fruits and and vegetables and, and all kinds of wonderful things for people to eat. But after the curse, there were weeds, there were thorns, the, the ground became stubborn, and the only way that we could survive was through hard work, through the sweat of our brow, as Genesis says. Here, once again, God is promising that there will come a time, like the time of Eden, he's pointing us forward to the earth made new, when there will be this great abundance, and all we'll be doing is enjoying the abundance of the land, harvesting. This picture of abundance stands in stark contrast to the prosperity of Israel. You re- may remember in previous messages where we talked about the time of Amos. This is a difficult time to be a prophet of judgment because everything was fine. They were doing really well financially, but even though they were doing well financially, they were, at least some of them were, the, the leaders were, even though they were prospering, even though the leaders had multiple well-furnished homes and the economy was thriving, The reality was that they were gaining this wealth by oppressing the poor. But here, in stark contrast to the prosperity that they were enjoying in the time of Amos, we see an abundance that is far beyond anything that they experienced. God's picture of abundance, it dwarfs their current experience of prosperity. Even though they were doing really, really well, the abundance that God is talking about is like nothing they had ever seen or even imagined. And not only was it for a few people, it was for everyone. That's the picture of God's abundance. It's not just for a chosen, privileged few. This picture of abundance is for everyone. Notice who he's talking about in verse 14. Amos 9, 14. He says, I will bring back my people, Israel. He's talking to, it's an inclusive term that he used here. He's talking about Israel. Now think about that just for a moment. If anyone was undeserving of this kind of a promise, this kind of abundance, this kind of prosperity, if anyone was undeserving of that, it was Israel, especially the leadership of Israel. They had wasted their God-given privileges. He had selected them. They were his special chosen people. But instead of sharing that with other people, they kept it to themselves. They had wasted it on their own selfish desires. They were completely guilty of injustice. And yet God still wants to bless them? Is that really true? But it's even bigger than that. God is not just talking about blessing the descendants of Abraham, those who had Abraham's blood coursing through their veins. He's not just limiting it to to the people who are the nation of Israel. Israel includes anyone, anyone who trusts in God, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done. Verse 12 of chapter 9 kind of helps us with that. It uses this phrase, the the context of who he's talking to here, uses this phrase, all the nations that bear his name. That's that's what he's talking about here. I'm going to give you this abundance. He's going to give it to, to Israel, genetic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, but also all the nations who bear his name. Israel is inclusive of everyone who trusts in God. Now, when when you hear me say that, you might think, Pastor Brian, that might be a little nebulous, all the nations. Yeah, maybe. But what's very interesting is that the early church in Acts, Acts chapter 15, if you want to look at it, verses 16 and 17, they got together and they were trying to decide who would be included in the saved people of God and, and what was needed to do in order to be saved. And they quote James was leading out in this this, uh, 
preceding in, in Acts chapter 15, one of the outstanding leaders in the early church, his name was James, and he was leading out on this proceeding, and he quotes Amos chapter 9 verse 12 to say, as proof that God's people includes Gentiles, non-Jews as well. Everyone, so that's good news for, for people like me who, who I'm, I'm not a genetic Jew. Uh, it, everyone is included. Everyone who trusts in God is included in this promise. And so in the context of Amos chapter 9, he is including these nations who treated other people horribly. They were indecent. They, they did terrible, unspeakable things to people. They had no regard for innocent people, helpless people. God is saying, you're included too in this promise. This promise to Israel includes you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that God is not like me. I'm really glad for that. Because when someone acts unjustly, it's hard for me to feel compassion for that person, much less a desire to see them blessed, a desire to see them prosper, right? I mean, consider for a moment how you would feel if you are driving down the road, you're abiding by the laws of the road, and you're driving down the road, and someone comes along and just flies past you. They're breaking the law. They're trying to get ahead through excessive speeds, excessive behavior. They're jeopardizing everyone's safety. And now suppose that a little while later down the road, this is what you see. Got him, right? You see this person, they're, they're pulled over by a police officer, and they're not just getting a ticket, they're getting a talking to, right? You drive past that person, what kind of feelings are you having? Right. That's what you get. Driving like that, trying to get ahead of everybody else, jeopardizing our safety. Look at you, being careless, that's what you get. Give them extra now, if you're like me, it would only be natural to feel a little smug, maybe even a little satisfied when you see that. Why? Because this person, they tried to get ahead by breaking the rules, excessive speeds, excessive behavior. So that's what they get. And we have good reason to justify that, right? We'd have good reason to justify that feeling of smugness, that feeling of satisfaction. But the problem is, this way of thinking can actually cause us to doubt God's grace when we are the ones who are guilty. When we are the ones who are guilty of excessive behavior. Look at what it says in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Here, Paul is actually summing up the message that we find in Amos 9, 13 through 15. He's putting this message, this promise of God, in, in, in succinct, clear terms. He says, now to him, speaking of God, who is able to do, listen to that, immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. Anything that you can come up with, God is able to do immeasurably more than that. You're not even close according to the power that is at work within us. That's God's power. He is able to do immeasurably more. Now, when we read a promise like this, like this, this, this summation of the final words in the book of Amos, this can be tough to believe when we think about how undeserving we are. When you think about your past, when you think about some of the things that you've done, this can be tough to say, oh yeah, God's speaking to me immeasurably more right here. 
It can be tough to believe that. And if you're like me, I have wasted my God-given blessings on my own desires. I've done that. I'm guilty of that. I've kept the truth of God, truth that, it, that would have set people free, truth that would have helped people know that they can come to God, that he's not out to condemn them, he's not out to burn them forever if they don't follow him, that he's a loving God, he's a just God. I've kept that truth to myself when I've had opportunity to share it. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of excesses in my life that have harmed myself and harmed others. I don't deserve to have God do immeasurably more than all that I can ask or imagine. I don't deserve it. And yet, that is what God does for undeserving people like me and like you. That's what he does. In fact, God specializes in blessing undeserving people like me. Like when you think, oh man, I don't deserve to have God's blessing in my life. That's, I'm the kind of person that God specializes in blessing. Some of his most famous followers, God's most famous followers, were, were guilty of excesses. Guilty of excessive bad behavior. Let's just think about some of them. Moses, pretty well-known person in the Bible, blessed by God. Moses was guilty of murder. He used excessive force. He went ahead of God's plan. He tried to do his own thing. He killed an Egyptian, and with the burden of guilt on his back, he had to flee for his life running from the, the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And yet, God chose Moses to not only lead his people, but when God says, I want to give my law, one of those commandments is, thou shalt not murder, right? I want to give my law. Who does he give it to? Moses. Moses, why don't you come up on Mount Sinai, and I'm going to hand you the law. And Moses, why don't you go and give this law to the people, you who are guilty of murder? He chooses Moses. Moses was able to thrive because God shows abundance. That, that was way beyond anything I'm sure Moses could have asked or imagined. David, David lusted. He was supposed to be the leader of, of the people spiritually as well as in every other way. He lusted. He took a woman who was already married, and when he couldn't cover it up, he killed her husband. This is excessive. This is terrible injustice. And yet God chose David. God used David to be a worship leader. God used David to write psalms that, are, that we read about and that bless our lives today. God used David in a powerful way. He blessed his reign, gave him victory over his enemies. Mary Magdalene, here's another one. Her excesses, the Bible doesn't really go into a lot of detail on this, but her excesses were so great that the Bible says that she was filled with seven demons, and yet God uses her to be the primary first witness of his resurrection. Go and tell the disciples, Mary, that I'm alive. Wow. The Apostle Paul. Paul's excesses led him to persecute and murder followers of Jesus. And yet, God chose him to take the gospel of Jesus to the world and write a large part of the New Testament. None of these people deserve the blessing of God. But God not only lifted their burden of guilt, he not only forgave them, he gave them blessings so that they had power to thrive as followers of Jesus. Here's why they were able to experience that. Here's why they were able to thrive as followers of Jesus. Because they recognized that abundance comes from God, not from us. 
We're not able to go out and get it for ourselves. Whenever we do that, it's excessive behavior and it burdens us, it weighs us down, makes our lives miserable. But when they turned to God and they trusted him to provide, they experienced a prosperity that was more than they could ask or imagine. These great men and women of faith in the Bible are no different than you and I. They thrived as followers of Jesus, not because they had some special goodness, they had some special spiritual edge that we don't have. No, they thrived because God gives his abundance to undeserving people. That's why. It's because of God. He blesses us. We get to experience that when we turn to him. Amos 9, verse 15 It tells us how people like us, undeserving people, how we get to experience abundance beyond what we can ask or imagine. Look look what it says. Verse 15, God speaking here, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. Now this is just a continuation of what he has started in verse 11. In verse 11, you see this language. He says, I will restore I will repair. I will rebuild what has been lost. I will fix what has been broken. I will will mend what has been damaged. God is the one that is doing this work. In verse 14, he says, I will bring my people back from captivity. God is the one that is doing it. He's not saying, hey, I will do it if you can help me a little bit. You don't see that at all. This is God's responsibility. I will bring you back. I will restore. I will rebuild. And now in verse 19, sorry, verse 15 of chapter 9, he says, I will plant. Here, God describes himself as a farmer. He says, I will plant Israel in their own land, never to be uprooted. He's a good farmer. He's able to prevent the gophers. He's able to prevent all the other things that could come along and take that plan. I will prevent that from happening, he's saying, forever. Never again will they be uprooted. And he is going to plant. Now before farmers, he's speaking to people that understand farming. Before farmers plant, they do something for the seed that the seed cannot do for itself. They do something very significant. They prepare the soil. That's what a farmer does. In my backyard, we, we have a few of these planting boxes where we, we use to, to grow uh, vegetables. And this year, I decided to make a special effort to prepare the soil. Now, to help you understand why this is so important, we have on the other side of our fence a, a tree. Actually, there are a couple of trees. Um, they're strategically located a few yards away from my planting boxes. And as you can imagine, those trees really enjoy sending out roots that go up into the planting boxes. And so I knew that if my plants were going to grow, I'd have to get in there and I would have to remove these tree roots. Now these aren't real big boxes, but I I started to realize that after digging down a couple of feet to really get out all of the roots, this was going to be a big job. I spent hours with a pick and shovel out there, digging down, trying to get out all the little roots and all the big roots, clearing it out of roots. After it all got cleared out, I put in a few bags of soil additive. I mean, after going to all that work, I might as well just go full bore, right? So I put in some soil additive uh, so it would kind of keep the soil from getting clumped up. And then I put in some fertilizers so the plants would have plenty of good food to pull from. This, this process took several days. I was working at it a few hours here, a few hours there, but it took a long time. It was a lot of work. I had to sweat. It was, it was labor. But now, 
my plants are thriving. They're thriving because that's what plants do in good soil. When you have good soil, when you have soil that's prepared, that's where plants can thrive. This is how thriving takes place. My plants would not have thrived if I'd have just shoved seeds between the roots in my planting boxes. But because the soil was prepared, now these plants have thick, green, healthy foliage, and they're well on their way to producing. When God says, I will plant my people, that's you and I, when he says, I'm going to plant Israel, he's comparing us, not to a farmer, he's comparing us to a seed. And seeds are entirely dependent on someone else to prepare the soil, entirely dependent on someone else for them to thrive. We are entirely dependent upon God, the farmer, if we're going to thrive. We can't make it happen. We're dependent upon him who makes it happen. When the soil is right, the seeds are free to thrive. God has put in the sweat equity. He has gone to the cross for us. He has given us grace. He has given us abundance. He has provided everything that we need for a full and complete life. That's why Jesus came, right? John 10, 10. I come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundant. God's done it, and he will do it for us. Although our culture constantly bombards us with lies telling us that if you're going to have an abundant life, you've got to go out and get it. You've got to depend upon your own judgment. You've got to use your ideas, your plans. If you think you can get it, go after it. Culture tells us all the time. But in contrast to that, the message of Amos saves us. It saves us from the crushing excesses of self-fulfillment. Abundance is not taken. Abundance is received. It's a gift. God is going to do it, and we will experience it if we turn to him and we receive what God wants to give to us. It's received from a God who gives abundantly to undeserving people. God does the work. He provides. So today, when you are tempted to fill your life, just like Eve at the tree, and Satan is saying, hey, if you really want to have a full life, then you need to go against God's plan. God's keeping something from you. You really need to have this fruit. When he comes to you with the same exact temptation, that if you're going to have a full life, then you need to go out and take it. You need to go out and get it. You need to add something to your life. You need to trust your judgment as if we've never been wronged. Trust your judgment. Know that when Satan comes to you with that, know when that, when that temptation comes for you to go out and try to fill your life, know that God has blessings that dwarf anything that we could ever come up with. And his blessings are for everyone, especially those who don't deserve them. I invite you today to look to the one who gives immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. He gives it to undeserving people. Let him care for you and let him set you free to thrive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you understand our complete inability to thrive and so you promise to do it for us. You don't hold against us our past, the sins that we've committed, the injustices that we've committed, you don't treat us as we deserve to be treated. You don't treat us as we would probably treat us if we were in your shoes. Thank you, God, for your grace. 
I pray for the capacity to receive it, that we might thrive today. In Jesus' name.